Welcome to At The Real, the podcast where we talk about the entertainment that we consume and what we really think about it. I'm one of your hosts, Michael, and I think I'm just going to have to listen to my heart, which is going ba-bump, ba-bump, ba-bump. And this week I am joined by my co-host, friend, and the man that is definitely going to merchandise the heck out of our show, you know, with the lunch boxes and the action figures and the flamethrowers. The kids just love the flamethrowers. Jesse, how you doing, Jesse? Doing well, man. I'm my own best friend. Well, I think we'll just kind of jump right into it. Uh, we actually haven't done an episode like this in a while, have we, Jesse? I'm trying to think of the last one. Um, yeah, it's been a minute, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, we are talking about uh, more one of our birthday episodes, I would say of um one the great the incredibly hilarious uh mel brooks yeah i mean one of the animators of modern day comedy if you will i mean the man is just incredibly hilarious yeah uh, it is impressive to me like just just how funny he is i mean like i don't want to sound like i'm discounting any of his uh his, his amazing works among all of the things that he's done but just like that the whole like you know the the heart listen to the heart but dump but dump thing that is is all just him and even i could i could kind of hear you chuckling a little bit and that jokes uh he made that joke in uh, i think it was 1969 and it still is just hilarious <laughs> I mean, some of the things that he made are either on Broadway or, you know, still being remade to this day. So I think to say the man was ahead of his time in comedy is like selling him a little short. Yeah, I, I think there's just so many uh, classic jokes, classic situations. Um, just again and again amazing knee slappers of comedy that he was able to put out there that just is just impressive yeah i mean so we can kind of start getting into that then you would wanted to talk about the man's life yeah i so in doing a little research for this episode um i learned some stuff uh that i just had never known about uh mel brooks it's just kind of crazy to me, like, uh, and it was always in the back of my head, like uh, men of a certain age um, go through certain life events. And the man is, I mean, uh, now 97. He actually just is uh, just about to have his birthday here um, on the 28th of this month. So, yeah, his birthday, June the 28th, and we're recording on the 27th. So, yeah, tomorrow. Yeah. Um, so he was born, uh, his full name is uh, Melvin James Brooks, or uh, his original name before I think that's his, his show name is Brooks is Cam. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly. Camin, uh, Camin Sky, Camin Sky. Um, so he's born in uh, 1926. Uh, and his uh, father actually died pretty early on in his life. I think he was only two. So he was raised by a single mother. 
Uh, I saw some interviews in this research that she actually would sell milk bottles uh, to pay for him to be able to go watch movies because he he was just a born comedian. Uh, he talks about <laughs> like people looking down to his crib and like laughing at him. And he's like, I, I, clearly I was a, I was born comedian or or I was just really an ugly baby. Um, his mom helped him be able to experience the things that he really loved, which was film and comedy. And it's great to see again, you, we, as we talk about these, uh, figures and these entertainment industries consistently, it's always interesting to see like parents, how they potentially helped and fostered this love. Uh, just, it's really nice to see continuing on. He actually, something I didn't know at all. And this was my com the kind of reference to the comment I made of men of a certain age. Uh, did you know that he served during world war two, Jesse? I did not know, but I am seeing that on his Wikipedia page right now. So. Yeah. So he did serve. And like I said, a man of a certain age, I mean, born in the 1920s. Uh, so, you know, world war two happening. Yeah. Kind of, falls within that 18 age range. And that's what happened to Mel Brooks is that he was drafted into the army when he did eventually turn 18. He was brought in trained. Uh, he did actually make it over to France uh, in 1944 and later then made it into Belgium uh, where he actually served in uh, a engineering combat battalion where he was specifically in charge of or his battalion was in charge of clearing out booby trapped buildings and defusing landmines. Uh, Brooks was not actually one of the people that diffused them because that was a specialist role that he did not feel uh, fulfill the requirements for, but he actually was tasked with locating the landmines, which sounds like the worst possible job next to diffusing them. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a occupational hazard. If there ever was one. It's pretty crazy. And he even uh, there's a quote here, a quote here that is along the roadside. You'd see bodies wrapped up in mattress covers stacked in a ditch. And those would be American. That could be me. I sang all the time. I never wanted to think about it. Death is death is the enemy of everyone. And even though you hate Nazis, death is more of an enemy than a German soldier. Spending time, uh, he also talks about the fact he would hear they would hear uh the german soldiers like sing over a loudspeaker to help you know probably demoralize the other side and stuff but book uh brooks would respond uh with a bullhorn and singing uh toot toot tootsie uh goodbye which is apparently i looked it up it's like uh kind of a train song i guess but it was uh written by a very famous uh jewish artist alan jolson and so he would sing that back uh, at the Germans with a, a loudspeaker. And he even got uh, put up in the uh, in jail. He got uh, put in jail during his time in the army for a small period of time because he actually uh, hit a anti-Semitic heckler uh, for one of his comedy stand-ups in the head with a helmet <laughs> and smashed and smashed him in the head with his mess kit as well. So that's uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, pretty creative of it. Yeah, right. Uh, but as time went on, uh, Brooks's unit, he slowly actually got moved into with the ending of the war. Uh, he got moved into kind of more of one of those 
uh, com uh, comedic touring um, bases uh, where he actually did like comedy and helped run shows and performances for soldiers and was eventually honorably discharged as a corporal. So that was like a really cool thing. I'd had no idea that this guy famous, famous for comedy, uh, making people's lives, you know, brighter through this had to deal with one of the most probably darkest times in human history. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and to emerge from that and to still have that wonderful sense of humor intact and to be able to utilize it to its fullest extent is not something that just anyone could do, I would imagine. Yeah, a particular iron sense of will, I would say. Yeah, that's a that's a tough bastard to who is able to move, carry on after something like that. But as we continue forward after the war, uh, Brooks came back and proceeded to get some jobs doing writing for various shows, uh, trying to keep you know that comedy aspect of going. And he actually, this is where he met uh, one of his, uh, from my understanding, one of his longest time friends. I've seen, I saw a lot of. Uh, interviews talking about their relationship, Carl, Carl Reiner. And uh, they, they actually famously did the 2,000-year-old uh, man. Um, yeah, 2,000-year-old man. Uh, and it was like a comedy bit, apparently. Like, they were sitting in the office. I saw an interview with uh, Carl talking about the whole thing where he was listening to this guy, Mel, talk in this office that they were in and just, just cracking jokes, cracking jokes, all this type of stuff. And so Carl came back one day and he put this record on the, uh, on Mel's pro, uh, Mel's desk and was like starting off. And the, the, the video I found was really adorable because you have Carl telling his side of the story in one interview. And then it cuts to Mel telling his side of the story in a completely different interview. And it's actually pretty, cool because there's several interviews like that between uh mel uh, carl uh mel his his wife Anne, uh mel and Jean, uh and they just it's very clear that they've they all remember the same exact story there's no one like fudging like oh you know he said this actually funny line no they're all telling the exact same story so it's very it, it makes you really feel like you were there but carl puts the record down and is like excuse me sir i hear that you were at the, the, the crucifixion of Christ. And Mel goes, oh, without missing a beat and goes right into it and talking about like as if he was actually there 2000 years ago. Um, and so it's just this magical a whole experience. And I don't know if you've ever listened to the 2000 year old man. Uh, bits, Jesse. Mm -hmm. I have not. No. Well, I recommend them. Uh, they are pretty funny. They I definitely think watching the videos that go with them kind of adds some to it uh, because it was it it was a comedy bit but there is a lot of physical humor they do um and it is it's 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 prime early brooks stuff so it's it's pretty solid stuff and i don't know how widespread improv comedy was back then was that one of the earlier like famous examples of an improv show of sorts that worked well i mean i think this time frame when they were doing it you that the 
that like the fifties, the sixties performances, you still had those stand like stand up comedians were huge uh, all through that time with the advent of television really becoming its own thing, um, as well as you know records and all that. So I don't think it necessarily was totally uh, wholly independent and singular, but I do think it was a particular tone and both of their deliveries between the two. Uh, Mel even talks about like he truly loved making Carl uh, laugh. Like he's like, that's how I knew a joke was funny was when I could make Carl laugh with me on stage in front of people because sometimes he wouldn't know what was coming and it, that was the beautifulness of it. So I do think a lot of comedians have that type of sway, especially during that time that they were celebrities in a whole different sphere than I think what, even what we have now, I don't feel like we have the same level of comedians doing the same bits and being shown to us in the same amount as during that fifties era when this was big. Yeah, and I mean, I think we're also now just so inundated with a litany of stand-up comedians that they kind of gather a little bit sometimes, <laughs> maybe. That's, I, that, yeah, I, I like that. I like that kind of explanation of it. <laughs> I mean, I'm just spitballing here, but it sounds to me like they found a pretty good formula and, you know, it was a pretty pretty outrageous success for them um but i i think also when the comedians themselves are having fun that can be infectious and then i think maybe the audience you know starts to have you know a better time as well yeah and do you know one of the audience members that particularly loved the 2000 year old band i'm guessing it's somebody famous Oh, incredibly, incredibly famous. <laughs> I, man, I could not even hazard a guess. What do you got? <laughs> uh, the Queen of England. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Apparently, Carl talked about, like, one of the one of the guys uh, was like, hey, can I get this record? Oh and he's like, man, this is amazing. And he came back and was like, can I get 12 more? And he's like, yeah, sure, here you go. And he's like, all right, great. And he takes it and he's just like, oh, hey, by the way, I played it for... Uh, the queen mother herself and he was just like oh my gosh and when he went and told mel he was like well the biggest and i'm gonna do this wrong and i'm pretty sure this is a yiddish origin word here so ap apologize the biggest shiska uh in the world loves it and we're home free because they were very unsure if they actually liked it <laughs> Man, I was going to guess like Gene Wilder or something. So I would have been way off. <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, just a completely different. Uh, <laughs> that's like one of those earliest relationships. Him and Carl became were friends from then on. In fact, um, when they both became uh, widowers, I'm jumping a little ahead in his timeline, but when uh, Mel's wife died in 2005, I think it was due to cancer, if I remember correctly. And then Carl's wife uh, died in 2008 eight if i remember um they then spent a lot of time together before uh, carl's death in 2020 where they would watch movies every night together and you know probably crack each other up to no end i wish i could have been in those rooms yeah be a fly on the wall for sure any movies in particular do you know i didn't i wasn't able to find anything in particular on what they would watch but i 
I mean, they were in, I, they themselves and produced were a part of so many different ones. I imagine they would watch so many. I mean, one that comes to mind for Carl specifically is it's a mad, 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 mad world, uh, which is hysterical and is, uh, was later remade into rat race, which is a terrible movie. So (laughs) for sure. Yeah. That that never happens. Shocker. (laughs) But so uh, we can move on and then we'll just kind of jump. I I referenced it, but uh, Mel had two wives. Um, His first one, they were divorced and then won't touch too much more on that because I couldn't find a whole lot on their relationship. But eventually, uh, Mel met and married one Anne Bancroft, uh, who is a famous actress in her own total right. Uh, not only uh, her amazing work in as in the stage production of The Miracle Worker, but also in uh, the movies like The Graduate uh, and and also when they starred together in uh, To Be or Not, how they met was she was at a a show, a, a musical show, or like a musical showcase type show. And out of the dark, somebody like uh, yelled, Anna, I, I love you or something along those lines was just very forward. And then she like was like, who's that? And he's like, Mel Brooks. And she's like, I have your album. I love it. And he's like, great. I'll sign it. And she talks about like, she's like in years and years and years, I'd never been pursued so aggressively by any man except him. And she's like, he never wanted to be away from me. Everywhere I went, he wanted to be right there with me. She's like, I would be like, he'd be like, where are you going? And she'd be like, oh, I'm, I'm going to the store. And he's like, the store i'm going there too let's go together and she'd be like and he'd be like where are you going she's like oh i'm going out to this restaurant he'd be like oh i'm going there too let's go together and they were inseparable she she you can see in several interviews that they talk about it where she talks about like he 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 would embrace her and he would just want to con- it felt like he just wanted to consume her and it was the best kind of love she ever felt in her entire life. And he was always there with me and I never ever felt alone. So it is very magical to see those interviews of them talking about each other, because you can really tell that they had a once in a lifetime kind of love between each other. Yeah. Pretty atypical of Hollywood for a marriage to span several decades and into a a new millennium so and she was also a a big collaborator of his uh she actually uh a small little movie you might have heard of it jesse uh blazing saddles uh which we'll touch on here in a bit was actually going to be named uh with the working title for it for a very long time was tex x so like, you know, Texas and X. And the whole idea was that it would be playing off of the fact that uh, Sheriff Brandt was kind of like a, 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 in part inspired by Malcolm X. And so that was like kind of the running idea of it until one day uh, Mel was taking a shower and he 
suddenly the, the the name Blazing Saddles popped into his head. And so he jumped out of the shower and ran up to uh, Svencroft and was just like, he was like, Blazing Saddles, what do you think? And she was like, I love it. And that became the working and that that became the title because simply because she was like, that's the title that will work. We'll do it. Um, also, another great moment is that in uh, To Be or Not To Be, she wanted to sing uh, Sweet uh, Sweet Sweet Brown. And she wanted to do it, though, in Polish. So she learned it in Polish and then taught it to Mel. And then they sang it together. And years later, uh, there's an interview where they're doing like kind of a cute couple interview or something like that. They actually do the performance right then and there. And Mel kind of gets her to do. It, and he's like, come on. And he's like, they're not paying for us to do this. Let's just let's just do it. It's fine. And so they get right into it. And it's just like they had, you know, they practice it every night. It was just spot on. So, yeah. They're, they were a good pair is what you're telling me. Oh, yeah. I mean. I knew that they were married. I, you know, because I'd I've seen uh, to be or not or to be or not to be, uh, but I just didn't realize. Again, this is what I kind of love doing these episodes where we dive directly into one particular person's history or one artist or one director, one whatever, and I just suddenly get to learn so much more about them and who they are, and it's interesting to see the pathways they took and why they are the way they are and what media what art they produce is a sometimes a reflection of their life. And I imagine Mel's life was filled with happiness and therefore he just was like, Oh, let me just put this out into the world. Make people better, make people happy, make people laugh. Which he did in a variety of ways, especially with his work as a director. Yeah. So that's kind of his early life. What you want to talk about his directing, Jesse? Do you want to talk about his some of the acting stuff he did? I would love to. Yeah. Wonderful. So I was thinking we start off with his one of his biggest successes. Uh, one of the things that actually allowed him to be one of the only uh, a very elite group in the uh, entertainment industry who's won an EGOT which is uh, stands for uh, Emmy, Grammy, Oscar, and Tony, the producers. Yeah, one of uh, 18 artists, I believe I saw. Yeah. So uh, Mel came up with this idea of the producers. Uh, they did the film in 1967. He was, uh, and actually, I, I learned a lot about working titles with Mel when doing this research. Do you want to guess what the working title of this of, of the producers was, Jesse? Springtime for Hitler? Yeah, that's exactly it. Oh, wow. That was, again, just a shot in the dark. So <laughs> there you go. So, yeah, Mel actually was like, I want this to be the, the working title, or I want this to be the title. And as time went on, like a lot of um, the other producers, uh, distributors came back and were like, we, we can't do this. A lot of people are telling us they won't a lot of Jewish owned uh, theaters won't put spring, won't put Hitler up on the marquee. They don't want that up there. And so Mel was like, fine, fine. And so then they switched it to the producers in, in working for this. They, he had been talking to Gene uh, Wilder about this 
and Gene was working uh, doing a live performance, and Mel eventually got the the funding to make the movie. And he walked up to Gene, and he walked into his dressing room in this performance and said, "Gene, we got the money. We're gonna make it, and I want you in the show." And he threw the script down, and Gene put his hands into his his head into his hands and started crying and was just so happy that he was like, we get to do this. So just a great show. And then they eventually, and then his, his wife again, uh, convinced him to make it into an actual musical, a Broadway musical, which allowed him to get that Tony, uh, and which the original movie allowed him to get the Emmy, uh, for original, uh, outstanding writing. I also see this quote here where Roger, Ebert was listing the producers in his can of great movies, which he would compile a, a an, uh, an assembly of essays for all the movies that were included in that. And that he was in an elevator with Mel and Anne Bancroft after the movie was released. A woman got on the elevator recognized Brooks and said, I have to tell you, Mr. Brooks, that your movie is vulgar. And Brooks smiles benevolent, benevolent, try that again. Brooks smiled benevolently and says, lady, it rose below vulgarity. (laughs) And I think that sums up his approach to satire pretty well in that a lot of these works, starting with the producers, are just so outlandish with the level of satire and how they're tearing apart certain archetypes of society. And I think it just goes over some people's heads who can only see what they're being presented with as the face value and not you know, seeing the, the brilliance of the, the satire. So that's that's interesting to me. And I'm sure he got a lot of reactions like that throughout his career. I mean, I'd have to assume so. I, uh... <laughs> that was probably the, the most common interaction he had with fans other than people who like, enjoyed his work. <laughs> yeah, we, we haven't even talked about Blazing Saddles yet. <laughs> we have not, no. Um. But it's also interesting because it uh, Mel talks about the idea of he consistently brings up uh, Hitler and Nazis in his works because he wants to make them as a big of a joke as he possibly can so that he can uh, like diminish them and bring that entire ideology down by making them a bigger joke. And you'll notice that he only ever makes fun of Nazis and Hitler. He never brings up any sort of like he doesn't bring up like the Holocaust or any of the darker things that they did. He's just making fun of the people to be like their ideas and they who who they were. They're idiots. They're dumb. We should make fun of them type stuff. So it's it is interesting because he does clearly have lines that he is more than happy to cross. (laughs) Uh, But there are other ones that are hard lines that he'll never do. Which I think is ethical in its own way for a creator to have those standards. 
I I wholeheartedly agree for you. Yeah. It's something that will probably continue with, you know, just his body of work as, you know, people continue to watch these movies into the future. But, I mean, they're still putting his stuff out there <laughs> in new forms and new mediums. So there must be something working there. Exactly. <laughs> so, but Blazing Saddles, man, let's, let's talk about that. Yeah. Uh, so <laughs> Blazing Saddles, uh, one of the, I think, I feel almost like a rite of passage to watch and just to, to, to fully grasp it. Um, I God, I just, I remember seeing it on TV and like just being played and it's it, i don't know i don't know why it was being played because there's so many jokes in there that you can't play on tv uh they were obviously censoring the n-word um left right and center um and several of the other jokes were being cut out but it was hilarious and i even think i remember my father uh like stopping in or seeing it and go and like actually spending some time watching it with me because he he thought it was funny <laughs> he was telling me about like uh the like what some of the characters meant and the idea behind it and i have consistently watched this movie probably every few years just because it is so funny just love it <laughs> there's so many great bits in it there's so many amazing moments it is a movie that talks about uh racism and capitalism uh it talks about uh prejudice it deals with so many different topics in such a heavy-handed comedic way that just shows you how stupid some ideologies are that just make it that much better i mean the whole concept of <laughs> making a black man the sheriff of a town intentionally to drive the populace crazy because of their predisposition to be a bunch of racist fucks is <laughs> uh pretty hysterical by any standards and i just appreciate the way they sort of rip apart just every you know racial prejudice there is when it comes to uh people who are like that it also it has a couple of moments that i mean if this movie were made today would definitely you know be a big controversy in our age of social media but because it was 1974 and is already been preserved as you know an important work i think it, it kind of gets a pass for some of that stuff well i mean it's one of the it's one of his films that has made it i've out of four uh five no, three of his, that's right, um, that has made it into the National Film Registry uh, yeah. uh, the, you know, by the Library of Congress. So uh, the producers, Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein, which we will talk about here in a moment too. Uh, but it's interesting to me because I've even seen some interviews where Brooks talks about the idea of people saying like, oh, this movie, could it be made today? And he brings up an interesting point where he talks about like, uh, and this is, you know, only a few years ago at this point, he says, he's like, I think this 
social social convention, the social justice, this uh, is is potentially has gone too far in too many ways because we can't make a movie like this that showcases and makes light of these people with these prejudices and makes them the joke anymore because people are concerned about the messaging that comes out. So I agree with him in parts where I do think that sadly a movie like this couldn't be made today because people's backlash against it would be too great and yeah. it would sink before it could ever even take a first step. But also there, I do agree that there are some parts of this that I'm just like, this definitely could not be made today. Like there's yeah. no possible way. And for good reason. For sure. For sure. And I think if you go into it with that mindset and then are able to consume the purpose of what they were trying to do and have that perspective, it helps with your viewing experience if you haven't seen the movie before. It was also the start of his collaboration with Jane Wilder, uh, who was the Waco kid, and that was hysterical. And then he only took that part when Brooks agreed that his next movie would be a script that Wilder was working on. And of course that became young Frankenstein. Yeah. I mean, it was, it sounded like uh, Gina was working on it and Brooks like saw it and he was like, what's this? And he's like, Oh, it's the, the premises is like, what if uh, Frankenstein's uh, Dr. Frankenstein's uh, grandson was, uh, was like actually like a revered scientist a weird, uh, like an actual good doctor. And then he kind of was trying to run away from his family heritage, but fell right into it. And what would happen? And then Brooks is like, you, you want me to, you want to work on this together? And he was like, yeah. And yeah, they made young Frankenstein the same year that they were, it sounded like, in fact, and listening to some of these articles or these interviews that while editing blazing saddles, they were working on, uh, young young Frankenstein at the same time. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it was just the beginning of a very lucrative collaboration between two you know comedic geniuses. Uh, one who knew how to break those performances out in the movies he made, and then of course Wilder, who was just you know an immense powerhouse of an actor if there ever was one yeah simply charismatic and uh uh pure magnetism on the screen i would say i mean good god i've never heard anyone project like this fucking guy can project <laughs> in a movie good lord i mean yeah just uh willa wonka and the chocolate factory as like an entire uh <laughs> him yelling and Pounding the desk and the, the yeah, just got sorry. Yeah. <laughs> not a G not a Gene Wilder episode, but still. But he's very important for this film, and I think while a lot of people probably know him best as Willy Wonka, because that's you know, probably his largest contribution to popular culture. This is, I think, probably in a lot of circles viewed as, you know, his greatest achievement was you know this role in this movie that he worked on with brooks 
Yeah. And do you actually, uh, there's actually an interesting story. The, um, the one and only time uh, Gene and uh, Mel ever fought, at least that's what the two of them say, um, was Gene had this idea of at the end of the movie, as he's showing a case, as he's showing off the, 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 the his creation, they were going to do that, the whole comedy bit, the, the putting on the Ritz, the song and dance, right? Right. With, uh, you know, you know, do, 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 that, that whole thing. Uh, Mel was like, that's not going to work. It's not going to be funny. It's, you know, it's going to be terrible. It's going to be too silly. It's not going to be like comedy, like funny. It's just going to be silly or people are going to hate it. And Gene kept arguing that it would be, it's going to be amazing, all this stuff. And Mel said, fine, I'll make a deal with you. When we, when we do a screening, if one person in that audience, if one person says that's not funny or they think it's too silly or it's, it makes no sense for why it's in there, it, get, it comes out of the movie. And she was like, fine. If one person, I'll take that deal. He's like, you're going to see. Surprised, as you probably can figure out, no one in that theater thought it was silly. No one didn't think it was funny. They all thought it was hilarious. And uh, later, Mel would like said he's like Gene. He's like you were right. I'm unhappy you were right, but you're right. Staying in. Yeah. <laughs> oh. uh, was this? Did they do that for like all of this film where they went off the cuff like that? No, I think from my, from what I was seeing, it was pretty. It was just that one type thing where they were like, "Well, what are we gonna do?" But everything else was pretty well. Like they, I, I imagine there was some improviness to the whole thing, but they were pretty uh, spot on with a lot of what they were doing with this movie. They they worked pretty closely together. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's to this day. I mean, holds up very well <laughs> for. Again, the satire that it's trying to do, and just all the gags and the bits and the physical comedy that ensues. Gene Hackman has a great cameo <laughs> role in this film, and had worked, you know, I, I think with with some of these folks before. But um, Peter Boyle, of course, as Frankenstein's monster. <laughs> um, but. What surprised me the most about this and going back and just doing a little research, and this is probably just more reflective of, you know, the state of film at the time, is this movie has a PG rating <laughs> and there are absolutely scenes in this movie that are not PG. <laughs> so that, that always cracks me up when I see uh, that type of discrepancy with an older film. I mean... We talked about it when we did the uh, the Gremlins episode, right? That was it was it was really Gremlins was the one that, and uh, Temple of Doom was where yeah. people were like, "Hey, maybe we should reevaluate this." So, I you know, just as a precaution to all parents out there, if you're going to show your kids a movie before the late 1980s, maybe do a little research first before you just <laughs> trust the PG rating. Because you might wind up regretting that, but I mean, beyond that, um, <laughs> I there's just so many fun parts in this, and you know the 
the sequence with the bookcase and, you know, trying to remove the candle, <laughs> um, how, you know, he's drawn to the music of the violin and, you know, the, the monster, of course, and they use that in some hysterical ways. And then also recreating and spoofing some of the scenes from the original Frankenstein picture. It's, it's just, if, if you're a fan, it's, it's just great. Yeah. And uh, there was one more antidote that I wanted to share. Um, Go ahead. Actually, it's so, so funny thing. We talk about this being a PG movie, uh, and we reference that uh, Gremlins is the kind of one of the movies that set the PG-13 rating and everything else like that. It was actually a decade after this movie came out. Did they did Gremlins, Gremlins come out? So there was a, an entire decade between this very <laughs> some of this racy stuff that's in here that definitely would push this up in uh, age if it was done today. And uh, the one that the movies that set off the whole we need to reevaluate this PG thing. Um, so man, so much time, but, um, the character Igor, who was played by, um, uh, Marty, uh, Fledman, mm -hmm. uh, who is a British actor, comedian, uh, writer, um, very famous, um, his, uh, interesting to see him, uh, Mel talk about these consistent stories about these people in these moments and just kind of. Like it must it it must be magical working with the man because he just seems like a hoot and a holler and a half. Like yeah. I was watching interviews from maybe only like two two years ago now, um, and he was cracking people up left, right, and center. So yeah, yeah that that never changes. If anything, he just becomes more refined and potent with age. But uh, I saw about this movie too that um uh he does consider it his best work as a writer director which i think says something it also is shown in the movie big daddy when adam sandler is watching <laughs> it with julian and they're cracking up and i thought that was neat that later on when sandler was making I think it was the second Hotel Transylvania. He got Brooks to come in and play the part of Dracula. So just to show his influence on, you know, actors who came long after, you know, the apex of his career. And he was still having, you know, that impact on, on these new folks. Yeah. So this so my thought was interesting. Also, all black and white, too. Which yeah. I wonder if it was, I mean, I think it's uh, because they wanted to give it that old timey feel. Uh, I would have to assume. I would think so, because if it was in color, it would probably not have that 1930s feel to it. <laughs> yeah, the the, the old uh, black and white horror films, yeah. Yeah. The Hammer films. Good times. Um, anything else on Young Frankenstein? Uh, I mean... It's a great movie. <laughs> it is. I yeah. would definitely, if you're going to start with a Mel Brooks film, I would probably recommend this one and then kind of spread your wings into some of his more maybe abrasive satire, if you will. Um, but I feel like this is a pretty good starting point for anyone who's, who's curious about his work. Yeah. Um, so moving right along. Um, I mean, we can kind of touch on a few others. I mean, we're talking about, uh, 
high anxiety is a great one uh one of his lesser known stuff uh i mean the history of the world part one uh another great one classic you know uh, oh you're a you're a you're a bullshitter mm. <laughs> yes i'm bullshitter did you bullshit last week no did you try to bullshit yes um oh god Spaceballs, another another fantastic one. Um, so I just want to quickly point out that Spaceballs was the Mel Brooks movie that was played most frequently at my house growing up, and thus was the film I was most familiar with of his. Uh, you know, throughout my youth, my dad when he sees Bill Pullman in other movies will still go Lone Star <laughs> when he sees him. So which if you know my dad, that's that's pretty on brand. Um and this uh I don't know that is his best movie, but I do have a nostalgia for that one and I think it's a pretty fun cast and uh, a fun a very fun spoof on the original Star Wars movie. Agree. Also, I was trying to figure out why. I was like, I know you. I know you've told that uh, story about your father before, and I was trying to remember which episode it was in. It was our Independence Day one because he's the president in that. Oh yeah, so, yeah Bill Pullman showing up <laughs> in multiple episodes. How about that? Yeah, but, but I, was, I was like, I feel like I know that story Jesse said before. I mean, yeah, I <laughs> I've recycled material probably more than once on the show, so that may happen again in the future. But um, yeah, just it's a fun collection of great comic actors: John Candy, Rick Moranis, of course, Mel Brooks playing a couple of different roles in this. And again, uh, it has, I believe, a PG rating. And <laughs> it's one of those movies that, when I got older, I was a bit stunned that I was allowed to watch this as a kid. But <laughs> uh, I digress. Um, but yeah, just. Just so many great bits. Um, you know, comb the desert, you know. <laughs> and it's just <laughs> it's just a great time. I, I think that this would probably be up there for me still, even though again, I, I would not say it's its finest work, but it's if you grew up with something, usually you have a, a propensity to, you know, view it in a more favorable light than most. I mean, yeah, I, the, I'm surrounded by assholes. <laughs> Keep firing, asshole. <laughs> yeah, I think Rick Moranis kind of steals the show in this movie. But I, I have to say, yeah, it's, it's very in interesting sometimes where uh, the, like the main character, I feel like in some of the Mel Brooks stuff doesn't always isn't always necessarily the highlight. Uh, I think about Blazing Saddles where uh, Gene, I feel like, steals the show a lot of the time in that. Um, of Rick Moranis in this one also does that. It's just an interesting. Um, sometimes it happens, and I just find it interesting that uh, sometimes a secondary character or potentially an antagonist uh, is the it maybe not necessarily our main character, quote unquote, or our you know main lead protagonist isn't the one that I like most vividly remember. So it's fun too if you know you're a fan of other sci-fi classic films. Um, they do a very small nod to Planet of the Apes in this. And then they also have John Hurt 
reprise his role uh, that he played in Alien for <laughs> a fun chest bursting scene. So, oh man, not again. <laughs> um, I'm trying to, I think I actually saw this. Uh, if I remember correctly, I want to say I saw this at my one of my like friend, like, um, neighborhood friends uh growing up in aiken south carolina and like um i just remember like the 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 whole like the schwartz lightsaber joke scene uh and not like fully understanding it as a kid and only later in life being like wow probably the same experience you had jesse was you're just like that was that seems a little inappropriate for me to have been watching when i was a child yeah i would not (laughs) i would probably not put this on for my nephews until they are quite a bit older um but yeah once once you are at that age and i think in particular his movies just kind of seem to strike a chord with younger audiences in general so it's prime for those adolescent years yeah um but I also want to touch on what the, the first movie that I remember of watching of his um, with my parents, which was uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights. Which is, I believe, Natalie said, one of her favorite Mel Brooks films. Oh, nice. I can taste, Jesse. Yeah, she does. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Um, I love this movie just for the a slight dig or maybe not so slight at uh kevin costner <laughs> what, what what possibly could you mean jesse oh <laughs> uh, it's something about a an english accent or something along those lines yeah <laughs> um no i think this movie is great in uh just a lot of the comedy bits um obviously it being a um, parody of the Prince of Thieves, the like you said, the uh, Kevin Costner movie uh, that came out, you know, a few years before it, um, which is great, is that you don't necessarily need to be aware of all of the jokes that are in that movie, or not all, you don't need to necessarily be aware of that movie to then get all of the jokes in uh, Men in Tights. It's just funny and brilliant in itself. Yeah, they uh, again, it, if you've seen his other movies, you can kind of know what to expect in this. Um, probably the most entertaining of the various Robin Hood films that have been released in our lifetime. But uh, yeah, um, I haven't seen this one as much, but it's yeah, it, it's Mel Brooks, man. It's, it's good stuff. Yeah, I um I actually remember uh, the end scene where they're, you know, about to do the deed and all that type of stuff. And she's got the chastity belt on um, and the key doesn't work. And I remember asking my my parents, I was like, what what is that? And my mom was just like, uh, it was my mom or my dad. I can't remember. But they were like, oh, it's just underwear that they can't get off. And I I was like, oh, why do they want it off? you know, being young and very naive. And yeah, <laughs> well, I, one of them was like, Oh, it's so she can go to the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> and I, 
Nice. Just like, oh, that makes sense. Not thinking as a small child, obviously being like, wait, hold on. How was she going to the bathroom beforehand? <laughs> yeah, not putting two and two together. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but no, I, it's one of I think I, one of my favorites of his is this one. So yeah, I think it's one of his most well known ones, probably because it was released in the '90s and again was was shown to a lot of children from our generation that were likely too young to be watching it but the, i mean for whatever like, reason it, it seems like parents just don't have any problem uh introducing mel brooks to their kids at a young age so it's because he's so funny he just can't help it he is so funny and you do still get some of the jokes when you're a kid too <laughs> that's that's impressive it's it's uh has appeal to all ages i guess yeah um but yeah i mean that kind of covers a lot of his more famous stuff uh he also did a, a history of the world part two which i has been on my queue to watch forever now so I, I you know i probably should just watch it now at this point pull the trigger yeah i think it's it's good stuff He's a good yeah. man. He's 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 hilarious. I can't help it. I was like I said, I was watching a lot of these interviews with him, and he's just, I mean, he's cracking people up left right. Uh, a, a line that he was using in some of the interviews, like consistently, I saw I, I saw him do it like three or four times, and it still got me every single time because just his delivery and moments he would do it was he would always be like, uh, uh, "I'm not, I'm getting paid for this, right?" <laughs> and well, yeah, it was just, and every time I was just like, no matter what, it was just like, that's good. That's funny. Well, we want to wish the man a happy early birthday. Um, I doubt we'll see many like him who are this influential in our lifetime and just the, the grand scheme of comedy and being able to incorporate, you know, the different... <laughs> different styles of satire into film and still make something that's you know studios are willing to put out there um so yeah he's he's one of the one of the great ones truly one of the greats yeah he's gonna be what 97 uh 98 i think it looks like 98 damn yeah i know he really is yogurt <laughs> Perfect. I, I mean, I think on that wonderful note, we should wrap it up here, Jesse. I'm perfectly fine with that. We have, we have merchandising. No time to waste. <laughs> Perfect. Well, uh, thank you for listening to Hit The Reel, the podcast where we talk about the entertainment that we consume and what we really think about it. We try to get this podcast out weekly, usually on Saturdays, sometimes on Sundays uh, or whenever depending on how much i'm doing that week and uh so yeah uh hey if we got something wrong or we missed your favorite mel Mel brooks uh work of art um pause of fury or whatever that animated uh blazing saddles uh movie was i'm not going to count it so don't email us about it but feel free to email us at hit the real podcast at gmail.com again that's hit the real podcast at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you except for that one exception and feel free to take a look at our Patreon in the description of the episode. We'd love the support. And like always, hey, keep it real.